Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome back to May It Displease the Court. A podcast about how deeply and totally screwed up the court system has always been. But especially under the Trump administration. I'm Mary, your resident lawyer. I'm recording from home due to COVID, and I have kids who you may hear in the background despite my best efforts to keep them quiet. I'm here with Lee, your guide to all things rhetorical. And Hello. today we're hey. Today we <laughs> are going to explore the GOP donors' main goal for the Trump administration, which is capturing the courts. Now, of course, Trump isn't acting alone. I mean, let's face it, he hasn't been planning much, if anything. Uh, the real brainchild of this takeover is Mitch McConnell, who is our Senate Majority Leader. He controls the Senate. He decides what bills get voted on, if any. When the, and you know when the Senate is in session, he can take a recess, which you know he's in right now. Meanwhile, people need COVID help, and it's not happening. We need election security again. No bills coming up for a vote. And of course, a bill has to pass the Senate before it can become a law, and McConnell refuses to allow these bills to come up. And he's essentially shut down the legislative branch for anything except confirming Trump judges. They know they're not going to finish getting all these judges in during Trump's first term, but if Trump gets a second term, they will finish. Yes, I would like to reiterate that sentence. And as I love to remind people, four more years of Trump means like 60 more years of a Trump-appointed court. Terrifying. That's really scary, dude. All right. So um, Republican-controlled courts have already, you know, done like things that are, are terrible enough without them becoming the only option for the next 60 years, right? So what have they done? Well, they've decimated voting rights. They haven't stopped partisan gerrymandering, which is the drawing of district lines so that you can kind of basically cherry pick how the, how the voting process works. They've weakened unions. And I'm a member of a union. And um, regardless of your opinion on unions, they are the only option for collective bargaining as increasingly every state decides to start uh, creating these like right to work for less states. And they side with business. These courts side with business every time. If these like fake Republican, pro-corporate, big money politicians like McConnell, if they capture the courts, it is the kiss of death for American democracy. It will be a complete donor, big money takeover. And here is how we know. Mary, tell them about the 85-4 partisan decisions. So uh, since the Roberts Court has uh, been inaugurated, there have been 85-4 Supreme Court decisions, and that is all of the pro uh, of the corporate uh, cases. So they have won. They are undefeated. And mm-hmm. it is a completely partisan decision. They haven't been able to convince a single liberal member of the court on any single one of them um, to go along with them. And that's not the liberal members do switch sides. So it's not it's not like they never do. And it's not like the conservative members never do either. But they never do when there's a big corporate interest. Then they don't ever switch sides. They always go with the corporate side. And, uh, you know, you don't have to take our word for it. Uh, Here's Trump himself at a June 2020 campaign rally in Tulsa. Think of what we've done. We will have close 
to 300 federal judges appointed and approved by the end of my first time. That's an all-time record. That's an all-time record. I've always heard how important judges are. Now we know how important they are. Think of that, over 300, around 300 by the end of the term. And when we have another four years, we're going to have a big, big percentage of the total number. Very important. November 3rd. And two great Supreme Court judges. So we have two justices of the Supreme Court. Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, they're great. They're great. They are, they're great. We have two. And we could get a few more. And they want to appoint Supreme Court justices who will utterly obliterate your Constitution. And you now see how important the Supreme Court is. Think if we didn't have two justices that I think have been very, very, very good. But think how important it is. Think how important it is. And we still, I guess it's, uh, I don't know if it's an equal court. It's almost like we're a minority court, right? It's almost like we're a minority court. But I'll be soon announcing a new list of exceptional candidates for the United States Supreme Court. And I'll choose only from that list 100%, probably 25 incredible people any one of which could be a great justice, any one of which. And I did it last time, and people loved when I did it. And I'll only pick from that list. I mean, the Republicans, right? You got to hand it to them. They can focus. Since they control the legislative and the executive branches, they are determined to reshape the judicial branch by confirming these partisan judges to federal courts for lifetime appointments. Really, that's all they're doing. Um, McConnell calls confirming judges, quote, the most long-lasting contribution we can make to this country. And as of July 10th of 2020, according to Fox News, of all places, Trump has put uh, 53 total judges on the circuit courts during his first term, which is 17 more judges than any president in history except for Carter. Now, this has been in collaboration with Mitch McConnell, and they've now filled every single circuit court vacancy in the country. And again, to paraphrase Mitch McConnell, No vacancy has been left behind. At a Trump rally in Kentucky, McConnell, he, quote, thanked Trump and the Republican Senate for 84 new federal judges already this Congress. He says, keep sending them our way and we'll keep confirming them and changing the court system forever. So so how's he do it? So after McConnell became the Senate Majority Leader in January of 2015, you may recall that he spent most of his energy obstructing Obama's attempts to fill the vacancies on federal courts because Obama basically they just had to bide their time until the 2016 election. So it left over 100 seats, including a stolen Supreme Court seat for the next president who, you know, is Trump. So once the Republican president took over, the Republican majority then upended Senate rules to confirm President Trump's judicial nominees at this just like breakneck pace. And that's part of the reason why, as Mary said, nothing else can get done, because every time Senate's in session, that's all McConnell puts on the docket is just confirm judges, confirm judges, confirm judges. And on the whole, the nominees that uh, McConnell is pushing through, they are especially notable because they're inexperienced, they're young, and they have demonstrated partisan extremism. 
Typically, the role of the Senate is to provide, you know, meaningful advice and thoughtful consent to the president's judicial nominees after vetting them. McConnell's GOP Senate has totally abdicated its oversight role. They are just like a conveyor belt of confirmation, right? It's just like, get them installed, get them through, get them through fast. And that's sort of the best signal we have of just how crucial courts are to the Republican Party's reactionary political agenda. And I'm not saying that any political administration wouldn't be smart to try and get some Supreme Court appointments, right? That's part of the deal. But to stand up, as McConnell has said, and be like, we're not doing jack shit until we just fill up all the court seats. And then also, as we're going to talk about in this episode, they're like going above and beyond that normal pace of appointment. And they're also doing things like pre-vetting and pre-appointing and pushing people out of seats. And so anybody who tells you like, oh, this is just part of politics, like, no, this is not part of politics. That's like uh, saying that having like 12 drinks every single night is like just part of unwinding in the evening. Yeah. And they've taken away like the the state senators abilities to kind of uh, they would they would sort of veto people that they didn't want to be appointed to courts in their area. It was called blue slips. And it would allow these home state senators to basically decide who gets confirmed for their states. And so McConnell says, gone. You know, we're not going to do that. They used to look at ABA, the American Bar Association's ratings. And that was just kind of like a stamp of approval stating whether a person is qualified to be a judge or not. Gone. They don't care about Mm -hmm. that anymore. Trump has even nominated six people who were deemed unqualified by the ABA. They've been confirmed. Doesn't matter. In fact, they're not even going to look at ABA ratings anymore. They're just like, you're irrelevant to us. And McConnell, they used to have 30 hours where they would debate judges each for each nominee. McConnell slashed that from 30 hours to two hours. And, you know, he says, well, the Democrats are just trying to slow down the process. No, he's just trying to cram through as many um, judges as possible. In fact, he is trying to push the, you know, older judges, Republican judges out. He's saying, hey, this is your time. Retire now, you know, because he wants to fill those seats with very young judges. Yeah, I actually read a piece. I'll find the link and and link put in the show notes, but it's like somebody was commenting on McConnell setting this this breakneck agenda and was like, oh, well, that just goes to show how unprepared, unqualified Biden is to be president because he hasn't said anything about his plan for the court takeover. And it's like, yeah, because there's other shit that should be on people's minds other than taking over the courts, right? It is a part of the of the of the role of the parties to appoint judges, but it's not supposed to be like it's not a, a feather in their cap that they have created this almost myopic focus on this one agenda piece that doesn't make them like quality. It's just crazy how people are twisting what is obviously this really like misfocus on this court court takeover uh, into something that's like politically laudable is like, you know, highly focused or efficient or whatever. Now, you might wonder like, well, what exactly is a problem with appointing, you know, particularly young people to lifetime appointments? Well, as a lawyer, you you go to law school and you get you basically get a degree in research. That's essentially what a law degree is. Yes, you have you you learn some foundational principles, but, uh, you know, with each case. You have a specific fact pattern. It deals with a specific area of law. And then you your job basically is to research that and to look at the documents and everything and, and you know, and make your best analysis for your client and for the court. So you you become 
very specialized. I actually went into law because I thought I, I have lots of different interests and I thought it would be really interesting if I got bored doing criminal, I could go over and do contract law and, you know, and, and very quickly, like immediately out of law school, I found out that that is not the case. No one will hire you uh, outside of your specialty and you have to, you basically have to specialize and, and that's your niche and, and nobody wants to retrain you in a different area. Of course, I have a license that would allow me to do something like mergers and acquisitions or securities or something financial, but I've never done that before. So it would be ridiculous. It would be almost malpractice for me to go into that area at a high level because I don't have any experience in that. Mm-hmm. So when Trump and McConnell putting in these these inexperienced judges in places where they're supposed to be the ones making the decisions about cases, about whether, you know, what evidence should come in. They're, they're putting in attorneys who have never tried a case in trial courts where they have to make calls. They have to say what, what evidence comes in, what's the proper procedure. If you haven't actually done the work as a trial attorney, you're not, you're not going to know that. That's not something you're, that you're taught in law school. And you know, it takes a long time. I've, I've been an attorney for almost 20 years and I still don't feel like I'm an expert in, in an area. And, and, you know, maybe, maybe technically I could, but you know, you always feel like, like you could know more Sure. to be put in a place where you're making these decisions when, you know, 10 years ago would, is insane. That would be an insane thing to, to think that, that you would be qualified to do that. So that's that's really the problem. You have people who don't really know what they're doing yet. They're too inexperienced. Right. So strike one, just the absurd pace at which they're appointing people at the exclusion of needing to get other shit done, right? Point two, they're way too young to be doing this kind of stuff. I mean, like, th- like think about it. The minimum age to run for president in the United States is 35. But what's the like average age at which a president is elected? Like late 50s, early 60s, right? That's why the Trump and Biden are like unusually old. So even though the minimum age, sir, so you could be 35 and be some kind of, uh, you know, wonderkind and probably get appointed, you know, a fast track to Supreme Court justice. But if we look at the presidency, that never happens. And on top of that, like that person is a generalist, not a specialist. It would be like me at 37, which is how old I am right now, being appointed the dean of like a department that's like English, because it's kind of like communication, right? That's what your degree's in. And you've never run a department before. And not only should it be the department at like, uh, that's not yours, it should be at a huge school with tons of people where you're really responsible for a lot of people. That would be ridiculous. And I would be um, right, like you said, it would be almost criminally negligent for me to accept that offer. But it's not even just like that. I mean, they could take you from an English department where you sort of know it. And in, in this situation, there's people that are, com- it's completely different. They could put you in like a chemistry department. Like, sure. Oh, wow. Did you pass Did you pass wow. chemistry in high school? Sure. <laughs> are you a teacher? Yes. Should you be teaching chemistry? Oh, my God. Okay. Actually, I got you. So- would you say? Yeah, let, let's take a look at some of the some of the judges that Trump has appointed. Yeah, you know, but, to before, before, courts outside before you the do Supreme that Court. too, I want to add that the third the third thing I was going to say. Sorry, I don't mean to cut oh. you off. Is that no, please? They're also pro corporate, and I think this is the big piece that like no one talks about because when you read people defending the age or defending certain justice appointments, the one thing you know they'll defend like oh it, you know the agenda setting is actually good. It shows that they're being proactive, or they'll defend their age like oh well sometimes people are just young and accomplished. But what they don't talk about right is that pro-corporate sentiment. So according to an analysis done by ProPublica and Columbia Journalism Investigations, the Trump administration has brought into official court positions at least 281 
former corporate lobbyists. And those numbers are a year old at this point. So, right, breakneck pace, super young, inexperienced, and pro-corporation, which also means anti-democracy, right? Anti the working class, anti-civil rights, all that stuff. Yeah. So now, so now let's look at some of these people, right? So Brandon Bowling um, argued that Islam was incompatible with the first amendment. Like, like, oh, well that religion's just excluded from this amendment about uh, the freedom of religion. And also that homosexuality is not something innate to people. It's a choice. It's a lifestyle choice, right? That archaic bullshit. Uh, so a right-wing Christian group that declares itself battle ready to defend America is, um, is sponsoring this person. He was hired as assistant chief immigration judge in Texas, never having done any discernible immigration work. So just like Mary was saying, so, oh, you um, have a, you're, you're a PhD over in English. Why don't you come teach chemistry? Because it's basically the same thing, right? That's what's happened here. And now with, again, without any experience, he is going to oversee the immigration cases of people detained in El Paso and, you know, could be responsible for deciding whether victims of persecution based on their religious and sexual orientations receive protection under U.S. asylum law. A person who doesn't believe Islam counts as a religion, apparently, under the First Amendment and doesn't believe that homosexuality is innate. And he, uh, Bowling, is one of 46 immigration judges recently hired by the Trump administration. And then we've got Matt O'Brien. He was a research director for FAIR, Federation for American Immigration Reform, which is anything but FAIR. In fact, it's the country's leading anti-immigrant group, right? They hate immigrants. And so uh, when immigrants appeal their decisions, they generally get stuck, right? Since the Trump administration has made a point of filling the Board of Immigration Appeals with judges like O'Brien, known for denying nearly all asylum claims. And let's uh, let's focus on the D.C. Circuit, which is kind of a stepping stone for the Supreme Court. So it's something that's particularly important to look at. We have Justice Naomi Rao, and she is a former George Mason University law professor. Now, George Mason University is uh, notable because its law school was pumped up and, and basically is Coke funded. So uh, they have that bent. Now, she's also affiliated with the Federalist Society, um, which again, ha- receives quite a bit of money from the Coke Foundation. And she kind of went in with this goal of dismantling the dismantling the administrative state, which are the regulations. So, so a lot of um, corporations are subject to regulations and they don't like it. And she's like, all right, slash them. Let's get rid of those. During her Senate confirmation hearing before the Judiciary Committee, she went to great lengths to avoid testifying about who funded um, the center where she was at at the law school for their programs. She was giving uh, rather misleading answers, uh, falsely testifying, for example, that her center did not receive money from any anonymous donor. She was uh, plucked directly from Leonard Leo's network. Now, Leonard Leo, he uh, is head of the Federalist Society, and we'll talk more about that uh, a bit later. And in her short time on the D.C. Circuit, um, P- 
people who have been watching her have found her to have very extreme jurisprudence, that her opinions read like she's acting as Trump's personal protector. And uh, one of the instances of that was the Michael Flynn case. Now, you might remember Michael Flynn. He was national security advisor. He pled guilty um, for lying to the FBI um, about, you know, contacts with Russia. And the the Justice Department under Bill Barr, uh, even though he pled guilty, wanted to take back the uh, prosecution and say, oh, actually, we don't care that you pled guilty. We don't think there was enough to prosecute. And of course, his defense attorney is like, absolutely, yes, let's get rid of this case. So the district judge, Judge Sullivan, is like, ah, I don't think so. I don't think the, the prosecution and the defense get to work together to undermine um, somebody who's already pled guilty. And just get rid of the case. I, I'm not okay with that. That's you know that's uh, you know against what is good for the country, and that's against you know whatever happens. So he wanted to do a hearing about that with before accepting the you know the the government's position on that. And so uh, Flynn's attorneys you know appealed that. It went to a smaller panel, a, th- a three judge panel, and two Trump judges said, absolutely, it's good. It's all good. Justice Department, cool. You don't want to prosecute him anymore. No biggie. So Ju- uh, Judge Sullivan's like, eh, actually, I'd like the whole D.C. Circuit Court to hear that because I, you know, I'm not okay with that. So it goes before the whole panel and now eight judges to two. So the rest of the panel vote against the two Trump judges and say, actually, no, uh, that, that's they, they don't need to accept that. Justice Sullivan or Judge Sullivan can have his hearing this. They don't need to, you know, take back his he doesn't need to grant the the depart the government's, um, you know, motion to withdraw the case. He doesn't need to grant that. So, you know, here is an example of Judge Rao doing exactly what Trump would want to have done. Another judge who is appointed to the D.C. Circuit, although he's not there yet, because he's appointed for a vacancy that isn't even a vacancy yet. And this is Justin Walker. He's 37 years old. He was rated unqualified by the American Bar Association, yet he was still catapulted to the D.C. Circuit of Appeals. Uh, He is in deep. He has deep personal ties with McConnell and Kavanaugh. Actually, McConnell left the Senate. He put it in recess uh, when we were trying to get that first COVID bill so he could go to this party about, uh, you know, Walker's confirmation. Um, So, yeah, he's he's super, super tight with those dudes. And again, what's very scary is the D.C. Circuit is the stepping stone to to the Supreme Court. And so when Trump puts out his list of judges, which he's going to do, you know, who he intends to, you know, put forward into Breyer or Ginsburg seats if they come vacant, you know, Rao and Walker could just be fast-tracked. Boom. D.C. Circuit, Supreme Court. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really scary that you've got pro-corporate, yeah, pro-corporate, underqualified, not even young, but great, like just unqualified, lack of experience, uh, obviously terrible people well, walkers never tried that. a case as far as i know walkers never tried a case yeah, right so yeah i mean it's nuts so how so how right again i think it's back to that mitch mcconnell question from earlier like this seems so astonishing that anybody isn't noticed this right how does it happen 
Well, it's happening because, uh, you know, they are getting these judges, they're getting these lists of judges, the, the, the group during doing the grunt work of figuring out who these people should be is the Federal Society. And they are being promoted by their dark money donors. Now, the Federal Society would have you believe that they're just a group of, a group that sponsors, you know, a quote, their own website fair, serious, and open debate about the need to enhance individual freedom and the role of the courts in saying what the law is rather than what they wish it to be. Now, what really are the three incarnations of the Federal Society? The first one is completely fine. It is a debating society for conservatives at law schools and in the legal community across the country where they can meet and discuss conservative judicial values, things they've created like originalism and the merits of limited government. The second incarnation is one that is very familiar in Washington, D.C. It's a think tank that attracts big name conservative lawyers, scholars, politicians, even some Supreme Court justices to events these like meetings and and they publish um, papers and they have podcasts and they have galas. The third role is the one that's pretty dangerous. And this is the one that is the vehicle for power interests that are seeking to reorder the judiciary by grooming, vetting, and selecting amenable judges. And Trump has ceded all uh, input in who are his judicial nominees. He's given all of that control over to the Federalist Society, and that is led by Leonard Leo. And Leo is the one who's choosing these judicial nominees. And they are, in addition to being, of course, young and experienced, ideologically extreme, they're also the least diverse of any president in, in, in decades. Mm-hmm. They're very white. They're very male. Which makes sense. Given, yep. given and McConnell... And McConnell comes in with his piece, ensuring that the Senate just plows through these nominations and confirmations without any meaningful review. It's basically, confirmation is basically automatic. And then the goal of this, of course, is granting big Republican donors their insurance policy that's going to long outlast President Trump or this particular Congress. The donors with these lifetime appointments are going to be able to basically achieve political, and policy results through the judiciary. All right. So Don McGahn, who used to be the White House counsel, he is a Federalist Society member, and he's been very involved in uh, this judicial nomination stuff. He's also been working with McConnell. And he he actually was quoted talking about the Trump administration's efforts to nominate these ideologues to the court. And he plainly said that there is a coherent plan regarding judicial selection. And he admitted that, you know, it functions as deregulation and judicial selection. Those are two prongs that they want. But what he didn't admit was that there was a third interest, which are donor interests. And so when you look at all three of those working together, all three of those are working to undermine our democratic government. Yes. So whenever you hear the word deregulation, that is code for advancing the interests of pro-corporate big money donors, right? Because when we say deregulation, we mean deregulation of, for example, the fossil fuels industry, the energy industry, right? Industries that are harming the environment, that are exploitative, right? The banking industry, the finance industry that tend to make a lot of money for very few people on the backs of a lot of very exploited people. So once somebody ever like is in favor of deregulation, 
We always have to be looking at the money. And in uh, May of 2020, the Senate Democrats put out a report that lays out exactly what's happening here with all of the money from these donors that is funding this capturing of the courts. And we'll put it in the show notes and uh, just look for the link. It's a long link to democrats.senate.gov. And it names the uh, authors of the report, uh, Stabino, Schumer, White House. So we'll put that in the link. But essentially, just to summarize that for you, where we want to follow the money that is sponsoring all of these, these court decisions and not act as if these are just like you know, ideologically driven, uh, big, you know, Republican ideologies and ideals, because they're not, they're driven by money. So Republicans and their corporate uh, billionaire backers kind of use what they call in the report an outside inside strategy to capture the courts. The ultra wealthy funders are on the outside funding the operation. And then the politicians are on the inside implementing it. And of course, no one talks about or acknowledges that those two pieces have a connection. So the rights court capture machinery is fueled by like hundreds, I mean, so much, like money that we can't even imagine, hundreds of millions of dollars in special interest donors. The sources are never fully disclosed. You know, investigative journalists find pieces and, and hints of it here or there. But at the heart of the network is Leonard Leo, who co-chairs the Federalist Society, which Mary already talked about, and makes uh, the judicial appointments that shape our country. So at the same time Leo is doing this, he's also managing and coordinating a secretive network of more than two dozen right-wing not-profits, non-for-profits, um, that have raised over $250 million between 2014 and 2017 alone. So that's just three, $250 million in three years. That's, that's what we know. Okay. Mm. And they've used that money to target efforts to support conservative policies and judges. And the true source of that money, the true interests of who the, of the anonymous donors, is unknown to the public. And what are they using that money for? Well, it's funding this complex network of think tanks, law school centers, policy front groups, law school centers like what Naomi Rao didn't want to talk about in her confirmation hearing, political mm -hmm. campaign arms, public relations shops, and all of them are focused on shaping the composition of the courts and the rulings that they make. How do they do this? They deploy hundreds of millions of dollars from big money donors like the Koch brothers and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to uh, pick judicial nominees. They wage media campaigns for their confirmation. Um, they did hundreds of, you know, huge campaigns, millions about Kavanaugh. They prop up politicians that vote for them and attack politicians that don't. They develop legal doctrines for them to adopt. They tee up cases for them to rule on. They try to find plaintiffs. And they, of course, all of this delivers big returns for their donors. As we said, they've won 80 cases. They are 80 to zero at the Supreme Court. Now, what isn't getting done? Well, Basically everything else that the, that, uh, the the Senate is supposed to do, they uh, the House Democrats have passed over 350 bills. Ninety percent of those have bipartisan support. They have not even been considered by the Senate. The House is of course voted in every two years. They are much more responsive to the voting public, and these bills that McConnell is refusing to allow the Senate to consider are the ones that would they would that this is what the people want. They want lower health care costs. They want to address big pharma and prescription bills. They want to address the climate crisis. They want to enact common sense gun laws. They want to reduce corruption in politics. They want to they want to fund voter protections and voter security. 
But of course, that doesn't mean anything to McConnell. The voter doesn't mean much to McConnell. He isn't trying to serve their interests, their plight. He doesn't care. He it almost never sways him. Whatever's going on to average people, that's not who he's there to serve. There's actually a study. Uh, it is, oh, he's a political, let me find it, Larry Bartles. And he's over at Princeton University. And he works in the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Did a study about how money interacts with politicians. And he found that constituents in the upper third of the income distribution receive about 50%. So what that means is like 150% more weight than those in the middle third. So that means if you have, if you're above like the $250,000 mark, I don't, I don't even know what the upper third is. Maybe it's higher than that. Maybe it's lower. You're going to get one and a half times more input than someone if you like call on the phone or whatever. And then of course, in the middle third, right, they're, they're 50% less. But then as you get into the lower ends, of the economics, they get the bottom third, they get basically nothing. So you can call, you can vote, you can sign a poll. But generally speaking, right, you don't have the money, you don't have the votes. That is sad. I know. Because that's me. So, I know. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I don't even think I'm in the middle third. Just because thinking about the money that I've got to donate, that can't, in, in the, when you look at like somebody like Bezos, I just don't know. I mean, some of these people have so much money, it's hard to even fathom. It is. It's completely hard to fathom. Yeah, but they're driving the agenda. I mean, then that's kind of what we have to remember is like money drives the agenda and people who make money aren't interested in solving social issues and inequality, right? Racism, uh, health, like Mary said, like healthcare, right? They are not interested in helping advance the issues of the average American, quote, voter. But as that study shows, not really the voter, right? Because they don't have one, you know, other than actually going to the poll, they have zero voice in public policy. Okay, so uh, just to sum up, um, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, he is um, he is one of the authors of that Senate Democrat uh, report on capturing the courts. He also uh, wrote uh, an article in the Harvard Law Review, and in that he set forth uh, and kind of encapsulated what the Republican pro-corporate battle plan is that they are enacting here. He is the real deal, Senator Whitehouse. He is a former federal prosecutor, and he is trying to sound the alarm and get his fellow legislators and also the public to care about this judicial coup that's happening right now. So what are the what are the Republicans doing? Well, they're carefully they are carefully selecting vetted judges who are, are embracing the pro-corporate worldview, and they are giving a controlling role in the judicial selection process to the Federalist Society, who is also giving millions of dollars in dark money to put forward uh, and push these nominations. That millions and millions of dark money are being used to support the nominees and, of course, or opposing them, as they did in, in Merrick Garland's case. And there's this organization which is done through the Judicial Crisis Network, which is Coke-funded, that uses anonymous donations to fund political advertising for or against nominees. And then once the judges are in place, they want to tee up strategic cases to inundate the courts with amicus briefs, which is, of course, best understood. They are lobbying documents. And all of these front groups are being used in coordination, either to be a litigant or... Um, to fund a plaintiff. 
sometimes, again, putting forth these amicus briefs, and that signals to the courts, to these judges, how the Republican donors expect their judges to decide the cases that are before them. And in 2006, Leo, uh, he presented to the students of the University of Virginia School of Law an overview of the measures that he's using to help confirm, um, that he was using then to help confirm uh, George W. Bush's nominees, John Roberts and Samuel Alito. And I think that this is instructive. And his strategies included the following. Aggressive fundraising to hire a top media firm. About $15 million was spent for both confirmations, um, which include telemarketing and grassroots mobilization. He wanted to advance work recruiting for more than 60 organizations to support the nomination and the confirmation. Of a person who was committed to conservative priorities, again, code word. He also spent money on polling to figure out what the American people thought the role of the court should be so that the message could be framed in a way that resonated with the public. And they published white papers to paint the ground favorably when it came to the question of, you know, what would be appropriate answers for the nominee to give when they go before the committees. Now, Lee, can you just kind of um, kind of just explain what a white paper is? Yeah, white papers are like, um, oh gosh, I was just reading an article about this with the bailout. Actually, that's funny. So white papers are like somewhere between uh, uh, like a public manifesto and a research paper. So they're they're kind of like press releases for people who are not in PR. So politicians write them, academics write them, and they lay out policy, they lay out research, and they're kind of designed to just prime the pump and get the public on board. All right. Well, you know, that is the plan that the the GOP is using to capture the courts. And their goal is to completely break the federal court system so that it is irreparable for many, many decades. And but what we mean break is that it isn't a system mm-hmm. where where, a, a, you know, a little guy, a, you know, average person can can sue a corporation and expect to win in any circumstance. Or, you know, be able to join a union. All the things that are important to to average voters. That is not, if it, if it goes against a pro-corporate interest, once the courts are captured, we're just never going to win. So, again, if you're not a huge corporate donor, and I don't know anybody that are, if you don't have buckets of money, you're out of luck. Yep. Just like you say, Mary, it's like, you, you know, for all these people that are like, oh, people should be more, more, like, stop being so violent about the protests and everyone should just protest peacefully. It's like, well, what do you think is going to happen when you can't appeal your court decision or nobody gets a fair shake in the courtroom? Like, why do you think courts exist? What's going to happen when people cannot get their grievances addressed in court, right? Right. Yep. So what can you do? Vote Biden. Vote Biden. (laughs) All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for listening. As always, we do our research. Uh, We read the white papers that no one else wants to read, um, and we we scrutinize them carefully. So check out the show notes in your app or on our website, linked in the app. And uh, if you want to reach out to us, we are at displeasethecourt at gmail.com. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.